Hi, and welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing for the second time, uh. on keys, vocals, melodica, and more, some of the funkiest white boys to ever do it. For the second time, Donald Fagan. For the first time, Walter Becker. That's right, we're talking Steely Dan today. Off of the new illustrated guide to the characters of Steely Dan songs, Quantum Criminals, a new book out by friend of the show, Alex Papadimus, and illustrator Joan LeMay. So, Molly, we are here to talk the Dan. The Dan. We're back at the Dan. Back, back at the Jack. Dan. Do it again. Back, Jack. Do it again. Okay, so long-term listeners of this program will uh, know that we have covered Donald Fagan before uh, with uh, another good friend of the show and uh, the conduit, our, our, our spirit guide, our Virgil, if you will, into the world of Steely Dan, Matthew Perpetua. Yes. Uh, who came on in 2019 to talk Donald Fagan's tour diaries. Uh, what is the Eminent Hipsters? Eminent Hipsters. Uh, Donald Fagan's tour diaries and collections of his critical writings, which uh, amasses to a cranky little pamphlet-like length book uh, in which he talks about how much he hates hotels most of the time. Yeah, it was uh, great. Which, is, which was a funny and delight, but it, it was not really a serious look into the music of Steely Dan. No. Uh, but here we have a new, different way to look at it. So how would you describe this book, Molly? Well, this, this book is very cool because not only is there a visual element brought into it besides just, you know, we, we love pictures as well as words. I, I would it's say harder like, to podcast about pictures, about words, about music. Um, <laughs> every, every layer of abstraction just makes the podcast better. It's true. Uh, but this is an exploration of Steely Dan and their career and their lives through the characters of the Steely Dan universe, song yes. universe. So yeah, Jack, I, as in yeah. back Jack, do it again. Uh, is a character in this book. Yes. Uh, you know, the the Bodhisattva is a character in yes. this book. Uh, Ricky, as in Ricky, you don't lose that number. number. Deacon, a character in the book. Deacon Blues. Deacon Blues. Yes. Uh, any major dude. Any major dude. They're all all the stars are here. <laughs> the skies were dark uh, because all the stars were and here. And it's a it's a very clever uh way to get into you know we've read quite a few of these books now they usually start uh, they start in media res at yes, some kind yes, of uh, we know all that we know all the tropes the pivotal moment and then you you know get the i was born on a on a hot day in july <laughs> in my a, mom in a shotgun shack yeah. <laughs> in mississippi my mom didn't want me my dad didn't need me the devil cursed me <laughs> with the with the the pain the tragedy of being a guitar god yeah so uh, getting into it, we say later, you know, the the sort of multi, it, uh, not to get all multiversal about it, but it is kind of like, it's it's one, it's one universe, but everything's kind of happening yeah. all at once. Yes. Uh, and, you know, not being restricted to a particular timeline lets uh, Alex Papadimus kind of jump around yes. in their... Uh, career it's it's generally chronological but um, but it also yeah I, and this is a part about the book that i really liked and i say this a little bit in our interview oh by the way we have them on the show and that we will be getting to them in just a moment yes that's uh, important we have to a, a very lovely you know discussion of their book with them and the discussion of dan with them so this is just a little intro hi um yeah that i mentioned this but i like the the kind of uh as i describe it um Dr. Manhattan quality of, of observing the entire history of Steely Dan in popular culture at once. It, it has a, a yes, a, a everything happening at yeah. the same time feel, which I, I think is an interesting way to approach, critically and biographically approach this band. Yeah. Steely Dan is also kind of, if you think about it, one of the best, one of the worst and best bands to try to document their lives because on one hand, almost all of their output was in a single decade. Yeah. Which, you know, that's that's easy to then kind of pinpoint, you know, where they where they stood in culture. Yes. Uh, and yet they also, you know, started making music way, way before their uh, heyday. And they put out one album or they put out two albums in the yeah. uh, uh, the second millennium of our existence on Earth. Yeah, we talk about they have Steely Dan has this quality of like pr prematurely old <laughs> to them, yeah. you know, that young, they were they old. were somehow old for their time but too you, you know too old for their time and too too fresh for now or something i don't know <laughs> so let's talk about 
where we stand with Steely Dan, the bands ourselves. Yeah. What is your relationship to it? Because I feel for both of us, it is different than the last time we talked about Steely well, Dan three yeah. or four years ago. I think, I mean, that's the, the other great thing about this book is that it did, it both exists in the middle of and seems to have tracked a growing esteem for Steely Dan. A Danissance. The Danissance and, you know, Dan, Dan Pilled Summer. So I'll just jump into this. You know, I had known all the eminent hipsters in my life, the people whose music taste I really respected. Uh, I'd always known them to all be har- harboring a secret or not so secret passion for Steely Dan. And, and you know, the, the common reception was, as is mentioned in 40 year old virgin. Yeah. Uh, the common consensus is that Steely Dan suck. Yeah. Um, and are like the paragons of, of bad, smooth, overly complicated rock from the seventies. But, uh, the discerning music fans in my life had always championed them. And for me, it was finally, um, you know, I, I think it was when our friend Matthew was doing his Dan Pilled podcast apps. I was on my way to get my first vaccine at the Javits Center. Mm. The, ja- I, the Javits Center. The Javits Center in spring of 2021. Mm-hmm. And it was a lovely spring day in New York. And I was like, what is going to hit my mood right now of, of smooth tri- triumph? Yeah. And I finally uh, kicked on Asia uh, for the first time. And uh, it just hit so well. And then for me, that summer 2021 was was the summer of Dan. And I was I was kicking them all mm-hmm. uh, all summer in the in the headphones and really found an appreciation for them. Yeah, I, I got it finally. Yeah. No, I think I, you know, I, I haven't necessarily been seeking out the Steely Dan, but it's certainly been all around me due to y- your interest in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but reading reading this book, I, um, uh, it, you know, each chapter generally covers one character from one song. And so I just had a kind of back and forth playlist going where I would just queue up the songs as I was mm-hmm. reading about them and was like, yeah, this is this is great. Also, it feels like summer music. I know uh, Papadimus points out... Uh, the one of the critical uh, points of Steely Dan revival was the Yacht Rock um, yes. uh, web series that you know it's it's summer it's uh, it's time to drink uh, eighty beers and <laughs> like, <laughs> go find a boat. Um, yes. So yeah, no, I'm I I would say I'm even more more bullish on on Dan than I was before, uh, or than I than I was the last time that we recorded a podcast. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good band. Good band. Yeah. Good Dan, good good band. Just go for a drive and uh and throw on Deacon Blues. <laughs> that that was the that was the one that made it really click for me. Yeah. And Ster- still probably it's my stereo music. You it know? is stereo music. You really need a, ste- a stereo. Yeah. Uh but yeah, this book covers, you know, everything from uh kind of the the relationship between uh Walter Becker and Donald Fagan uh, through the through the characters that they write, including like saying that Walter might be the real midnight cruiser, the gentleman loser Donald's always wanted to shake his suburbanness and become. Uh-huh. They get into little biographical sketches of some of the real people that yes. uh, they referenced, like Kathy Barbarian, <laughs> uh, who it, it sounds fake, is is a real person. Uh, we we finally see a squonk's tears. Yes. Uh, you know, if the question is, have you ever seen a squonk's tears? Well, now we'll, you will have. We'll look at mine. Uh, we will see, if you if you get, if you buy the book, you will see the squonk's tears, uh, for sure. And then uh, I just want to pull up. We didn't talk about it in the interview, but uh, just an example of of Alex Papadimus's great great writing, great synthesis uh, from his. Uh, you know, year, years of music writing and feature writing for places like uh, GQ and Spin. Profi- uh, profiling such hot, new, up-and-coming artists as Chapo Trap House. <laughs> uh, yeah, we should disclose. That's a, you know, we got to do the journalistic yeah, oh, yeah. disclosure. Ethics, ethics and, and I guess music that's podcasting. What friend, that's what friend of the pod kind of means, in a sense. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, this pitch was totally separate. And uh, frankly, we would have we taken this this pitch we had Alex not written about 100%. me in, an, in another magazine. Uh, the Just re- writing about the song Haitian Divorce, a white band singing a pigeon reggae song about Haiti with sexually colonialist overtones, a put de lime into coconut vocal by Donald, and a guitar solo by Dean Parks with Walter adding a guttural quacking talk box effect in post, as sleazy as a smear of guano. Somehow, it's not surprising, this was Steely Dan's biggest British chart hit ever. <laughs> 
I love that. There's yes. there's some there's some great that's some, uh, that's we'll, some good shade on the Brits. We'll get we'll get into uh we'll get into it in the interview, but there's some some great talk about um you know uh some great analysis of how Steely Dan's perhaps surprise album of the year to uh, Grammy win is actually showing that Steely Dan is everyone's dad, yes. musical dad. Uh, it's yes. it's good stuff. We highly highly recommend reading the book. Yeah, good book. It's it's a cool object too. If you if you're into uh, like having music related coffee coffee table books, yes, it looks it I, it just obviously there's a lot of cool illustrations, but it just looks nice. Yeah, in general. And then you know on a on a personal level, uh, we relate to the the Steely Dan tale because uh, they were uh, New York area people who then got shipped to LA to, yes. <laughs> to try to make it work there. There's a, Walter describes Los Angeles as having a laboratory-like sterile atmosphere to work in. <laughs> uh, we, we have recently made the move to, to, to Los, Los Angeles. Angeles so yeah. we just consider us basically the exact same people as Steely Dan. Yes, uh, we'll leave it up to you to figure out who is the Walter and who's the Donald. We, I, I need to figure that out for us as well. <laughs> in every relationship, there's a Walter and a Donald. Donald. Go listen to Deacon Blues if you do not. If you need an, if you need hey, a door, I'll put it. I will put it in as transitional music, music to take us. Yeah, you, you don't have to go anywhere to do it. You can hear it right now. Without further ado, the interview of Quantum Criminals. I'm ready to cross that fine line. Learn to work the saxophone. I, I play just what. Okay, and now we are joined by Joan LeMay and Alex Papadimus, who have written the book Quantum Criminals, uh, the story of Steely Dan as told uh, through and by the characters of Steely Dan, a songs, an illustrated history of the band. Uh, and we're going to be talking with them about all things Dan today. So get ready out there to take the Dan pill and get steeled. <laughs> Take the Danville and get steeled. That's a good one. Uh, Molly, do you want to lead off? Yeah, sure. Well, I guess first, ha- I, I saw your mid-book tour. You're, you're, you're doing book events all summer. How are you hanging in there? The never-ending book tour. Uh, <laughs> it's it's good. I mean, I think there was a moment like like 36 hours into it where I was like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. But like, ne- you know, at some point it just, you know, man like tour feels more real than real life you know that's what you find out well, yeah well i will say that the uh the last time we covered steely dan on this po- podcast um was also kind of sideways way into them uh where we discussed donald fagan's tour diaries the em- uh, eminent hipsters the, uh, yeah eminent hipsters uh and boy howdy does that guy not like to get on the road his fingers hurt from playing the piano, he worries about his voice. He's very neurotic about all of that. The third step in the hotel is never right. Complaining about the hotel pools was what I was like, you know what? Great. Good good for you that you've reached this, you know, level of your career where this is kind of like the minutiae that you're worried about. I love that book because it's also, it's a great book. It's a great read, but it's also an incredible act of hustle because it's literally a bunch of stuff that he wrote for Premiere Magazine in the 90s and then like a tour diary that he kept one time. It's yes. like, he's like, I got this. Is that enough for a book? Which I kind of <laughs> love. As somebody who's now written two books, I'm kind of, I'm like, the best thing is like, oh, I already wrote this. Great. I'll throw it in there. I was going to say, do you, do you feel inspired? You know, do you have enough in the, in the tank at this point from your, your career that you could be like, I have a third book. Uh, <laughs> like it's, uh, I'll come up with a overarching theme. It's the greatest hits book. Yeah, no, I mean, that, yeah. At, at some point, I'm gonna do that. I feel like I'm the only one who gets excited about that when it's like the the, the, the James Wolcott greatest hits or whatever. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> but like it's like the, that you know, sells like 400 copies. Like, you know, so maybe the answer is yeah. yes. <laughs> well, I'm sure you've uh, answered this question perhaps many times now, but how how did you first link up to to get this book written and illustrated? We knew each other in former lives. Um, is how it like you know that how the the working relationship yes. began back in the day you used to if you worked at a rock magazine a uh, publicist would call you on the phone and talk to you about <laughs> records which is now yeah it's illegal they would throw me in jail i would be i would be flayed uh it's a, it's an egregious offense 
now, but but then, so I, I was a publicist for 17 years. I had my own company for eight. Uh, but in the beginning years of that, um, when I when I particularly when I worked with Jessica Hopper, who is our connector and the doula mm-hmm. of this book, and who we praise every <laughs> every bit of press we we do, we talk about her. Uh, back in those days, I would call Alex and be like, "I sent you." A fax with press clips. Will you listen to the promise ring? And <laughs> and Alex uh, would say no, never. <laughs> and, yeah, but yeah, there were used to, and yeah, you used to like know know yes. people that way. Like there would be different voices that you would hear on the phone. So that was how. And then like you know, I we just I like once Instagram happened years later, like I just was, I, I followed you and like, you know, as Joan sort of made this transition into art, uh, you know, was just a fan of the work and all of that. And I think like you had, you had definitely painted Donald Fagan at one point. And so as soon as this idea came up, I was like, Oh, that's going to be amazing. But basically like the very fast version of the rest of it is like, I, uh, Jessica got this uh, position at uh, University of Texas, uh, sort of editing books and acquiring books for their American music series. And she was like, what could you write a book about? And I'm like, I never get tired of thinking about Steely Dan. Um, and then I took forever on an outline and it was not really, it was like, it was fine, but there was something sort of not there. And, uh, Joan announced that she was going to do this thing where she was going to uh, paint all of the Steely Dan characters. And Jessica and I both immediately texted each other. And we're like, that's a fucking great organizing principle for a Steely Dan book. Uh-huh. And so we needed, it was like, that was the thing that we needed was this thing of like, I had all these thoughts about Steely Dan and we figured out how to put them in sort of the, the, the buckets of the different, uh, characters. And also like, I just knew immediately, like if we could sort of merge these two things together into one idea, it would be much cooler than your average kind of music book, which is, you know, sort of sometimes, you know, it's, it can be, it can be dry. It's just me. It was just me reflecting, you know, waxing. <laughs> We've done a lot of music books at this point, And I think, yeah, take, they, they hit a lot of the same tropes. And so, and by, for some reason, for a lot of reasons, it's not, you know, necessarily the author's fault. There's only so many ways you can approach a band, but, Approaching through the characters of the songs is definitely a unique version of this. Yeah. I want to ask about, you know, the book kicks off with basically the Dan pilling of society, this sort of revival of Steely Dan as once a a band that, as we just uh, rewatched the movie Knocked Up, uh, gargles people's balls. (laughs) Yes. uh, Is now like a very respectable uh, band to, dare I say, stan, uh, you know, in person and online. Uh, how, how do you, what, what was it like? It sounds like both of you are, are obviously Steely Dan fans from before the, the revival culture, uh, kicking in. What does it feel like to see, uh, society kind of catch on to Steely Dan as like a band that is more than just like a smooth rock, uh, artifact from the past? I'm delighted. I'm delighted for us. First of all, I think, because, I think we started doing this and it felt like this was going to be some weird uh, cult look for cult people. And it felt like the cult kind of got much bigger as we were doing it, which is, you know, you uh, like you always want that to happen if you're about to sort of put some product out into the world. It felt like there was a, you know, like we kind of we kind of stage dove off the Steely Dan stage mm-hmm. and there were way more people kind of to catch <laughs> us when we landed. Yeah. Uh so that was cool that that happened that made, like, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm really happy about it. I love and I'm pleasantly surprised that there's like Steely Dan memes and, you know, that like Gen, like Zoomers are trading Donald Fagan, uh, you know, I- images with impact font text on them. Like that's incredible. Rare like, Fagans. <laughs> mods are asleep post rare Fagan. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Do you think that there was like, I mean, obviously, there's not like a singular moment, but do you think that there is some kind of cultural trend or inflection that you could point to that may in the last, I don't know when this would be, I guess since that the Pitchfork interview that you um, cite at the top of the book, uh, that, that made the, the broader culture ready for Dan uh, in a way that it wasn't, you know, in the aughts, in the, the height of the, the indie boom, like, like, is, is there maybe even another thing in pop culture that you could point to, to be, be like the, the growth and acceptance and popularity of this is like, uh, you know, the, the new found love for Steely Dan in pop culture. I mean, like, what could I compare it to? Right. Is it, is there something that happened 
No, it'd be great to just be like, well, it, start, it starts with the housing crisis. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. You know. <laughs> well, look, I, I, you know, I don't want to ask a question and then answer it, but you bring up the ha- housing crisis, and I do think that maybe there is something, and we'll get into this certainly with all the characters that the the, the classic Dan archetype is the loser hero, right? And uh, perhaps there is something post uh, two thousand and eight, post uh, you know the the hangover of the end of history nineties where more people are ready to think of themselves not just as straight-ahead heroes, but loser heroes, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, resonate with, the, with those Dan archetypes. I don't know. Does that, does that sound at all accurate? I know you threw out the housing crisis more or less as a joke, but I'm taking it seriously. <laughs> I think there's, there's a little bit of that. But I, I think it's also, it's, it, it, there's been this, the, the, the sort of the dad archetype, yeah. you know, like sort of spiritual mm-hmm. dads. You don't have to be an actual dad to kind of be in that zone. You don't have to be, you know, anything. But like, I think there's there's something about that, too. I think it's the, it's the combination of, you know, maybe people feeling more, you know, less and less like they were going to have a traditional adulthood are drawn to these things from the last time they remember sort of understanding mm-hmm. what adulthood was. I think that's a big part of, of whatever dad rock boom yeah. we're in people's attraction to that thing. It's, it, it's, it's, it's not, it's not even necessarily identifying with your own parents, but it's identifying with like that idea of something, because I feel like we like less and less understand when we've crossed over what, what's do, how, like, and maybe everybody feels this way. Like, Oh, I, I, when am I going to be an adult? When am I going to feel differently? Like I'm finally yes. sort of, you know, at like what age will I suddenly kind of mm-hmm. be what it is? You know, it's like aspirational stability. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And like the dad thing is from that. It's, it is. Yeah. I think that's exactly, that's like really exactly what it is. It's like, we'll, you know, we, we will maybe never know what that sort of like the, you know, the kind of perfectly average nineties dad <laughs> <Yes>. felt <laughs> in terms of his safety and security in the world and like a mortgage and a house and like a, 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 a you know, a job that was not going to be, you know, taken away by AI. Like that was, you know, obviously <laughs> those guys worried about other things, all the time and you know as we learned from steely dan like there were a lot of people worrying about you know sort of like cocaine and houseboats mm-hmm. and stuff like that you know? <laughs> but there's something about i feel like it's like there is an identification with like that period as uh, you know a kind of uh, like it, it is it, it's a it's a bygone age and i think it's that and also like the you know just it, if adding one more thing is that we have unearthed so much of all the cool shit has been dug up and resurrected and redone like all the stuff that's sort of like the you know i've been saying like it's the all the john varvados retro stuff everything that like <laughs> sure. can kind of did like has like a cool leather jacket thing happening like we've done that over and over and we kind of like we have exhausted everything that's in the traditional so we're looking around for little pieces of the yeah. canon that we there, are, there are only so of. many micro generations that where you can be like i'm actually really getting into mark bolin now before you're like, you know, we've gone to that well that one yeah. too many times. Yes, like glam is back again, yeah, exactly. and like tight, yeah, like you know, yeah, exactly. Like je- you know, skinny right. jeans are back. It's the, mm-hmm. the the fourth time. It's yeah, yes. <laughs> it's fun. It's just to bring a personal anecdote into that. You know, dad, the dad vision of uh, Steely Dan. I just assumed because my dad had a few Steely Dan CDs in his CD collection, and so when we were uh, embarking on the first episode of the Steely Dan uh, for the podcast, I was like, surely my dad was a huge Steely Dan fan. So I texted him and I was like, did you love Steely Dan when you were you know, younger? And he's like, actually, no, I really didn't like them. I had a college roommate who played them all the time. So sometimes to the extent of like we would be out at a bar and he would be like, I need to go home right now and listen to Steely Dan. <laughs> uh, and so it always kind of like turned me off. So I, I like, you know, I kind of moved them to trash. And I was like, OK, so great. He's he's one of the people who. The over, perhaps the overexposure of Steely Dan didn't work, but somewhere someone else's dad is completely obsessed. So I'm just imagining you looking you because you, uh, we've all seen that you look over, you're at the bar, you look over, your homie's just kind of like sinking into his beer with a thousand yard stare, and you're like, "What's wrong, man?" You're like, "I'm you expected to hear like I'm just thinking about that girl or something." He's like, "I gotta go listen gotta to Steely go Dan. <laughs> I gotta go home right now." Well, let's let's get into the uh, the characters, which again is just a great a great way to kind of frame this band's career because it, the songs are just made up of characters. And so I first wanted to ask, you know, the this composite character of Mister Steely Dan uh, as kind of like both of them, but neither of them. Do, is that is that something that you came up with? Because I I love this idea of like 
this sort of secondary self that is is kind of going through life in this way. I, it's it, like I I sort of ran with it, but it's honestly it is like I think William Gibson is the first person I saw <laughs> sort of talk about them in that William Gibson, who is a, a I have to go home and listen to Steely Dan type of guy like that. <laughs> yeah. And, um, he ha- he has a book called uh, d- it's in it's uh, called Distrust That Particular Flavor, and like it's a bunch of his like uncollected stuff. And there's a thing in there he wrote. He, I think, wrote like um, not liner notes, but like the press release for Two Against Nature, I think, because okay. he was a huge Dan fan. And so I think he talks about it in there about the sort of like the idea of that these these two guys having a sort of a, a separate persona that formed when they got together. And I kind of thought about that as like, you know, because we sort of when we started making the list, like the most important Steely Dan character is the one who's not pictured. It's like the, it's the eye in a lot of these songs and the eye is Mm -hmm. not necessarily Donald and it's not necessarily Walter. There's some kind of like give and take. It's some kind of thing that is created when they're in the room together. So I think that was, it just seemed like it, it, it would seem like a way to talk about, the narrators of these songs without having to say like, Oh, this is Donald and this is Walter, because a lot of times like the narrators of these songs are doing things that you wouldn't necessarily want to attribute to a person, <laughs> yeah. like a living person, like legally couldn't do that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Like there are th- So it's like, you want, it's like, it's not Donald sort of pointing you down the hall to where Mr. LePage is waiting for like to <laughs> prey on children. It's Mr. Steely Dan who does a lot of different things over the course of these songs. He yeah, lives a yeah. lot of lives. Yeah. He's been in the Washington Zoo. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I think that that is one compelling thing when you talk about like the eye of the songs is that it often comes with this like distinct, almost a mix of, of both admiration and loathing of the central characters. Like sometimes uh, it's sometimes mixed for the exact same figure, like a, a, a desire to be like the character they're depicting but also a revulsion from like the the kind of sleaziness of of these people that that has this that often forms the the central narrative tension of these songs like that you sort of you you love them but you're grossed out by them yeah exactly yeah you kind of admire their freedom but hate them for having it you know None of them think that they're bad people or very few of them think that they're, that what they're doing is, you know, they're like, this is a, this is a really fun party that I'm at. They're really, yeah, exactly. the, you know, they're really having that, you know, that, that thing. And I think that's what I like about the book is that they are sort of, the, the, they all have sort of a way of looking at the camera, the quote unquote camera in these, in these, in these portraits about, you know, and that some of them are kind of like, please don't, don't judge me. And some of them are, like, you know, are, and some are of them are like, go ahead and judge me. And some and kind yeah. of see that maybe they're judging themselves, but they're presented neutrally, which is, you know, consummate with with the 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 way the lyrics are are uh, generally structured and presented. Too, it's up to us, the listener. It's up to us, the viewer, the reader, to do our own moral inventory and cast our own um, judgment on these narratives and on these characters, and they're just being yes. presented. Um, in a way that doesn't demand, but invites contemplation. It's a, it's a much trickier, it's a much trickier and more uh, creatively interesting type of involvement than when there's like, here's Johnny, Johnny's an asshole. That's the end of the yeah. song, yes. you know, like, I don't know what that was that I yeah. just sang. That sounds like a hit too. I want to. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's like the, the, the Gen Z model of, narr- of narr- narrative. Yeah, there's uh, understanding no, there's where no it's abstraction like, anymore. It's just like, I, I have anxiety. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. this guy texted me and I, I think he's a narcissist. And then I went to the club and I back. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, not to go on a, a bit of a rant here, but uh, I hey, did, it's a cr- this is a crank safe space yeah, due to seriously. the Steely Dan but that is, style topic. Yeah, that is one of the like things that tends to irritate me about m- most about like modern current songwriting is the assumption I think often both on the artist's part and on the listener's part that the song is literally about the singer Always. of the song. And it is like mixed up with mixed up with the like the artist as celebrity and stuff. But you know, any Taylor Swift, Swift fan would be able to tell you with a, any hardcore Taylor Swift fan would be able to tell you with a hundred percent certainty exactly the real life person every single Taylor Swift song 
is about, which is like fine if you want to play like the 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 fun of like life decoding of your favorite celebrity, but I do think that having the mystery of like, oh, this song isn't about a guy that really exists. It's about an archetype that we all will encounter throughout yes. our lives. Uh, and I think that that is like more the Steely Dan mo- model. These archetypes that anybody bumbling through the the modern urban world will will invariably encounter, and yes, either find uh, compelling or uh, revolting. Like El Supremo, I feel like you pointed that out in the book that like everyone has an El Supremo in their life, and it comes in various formats, uh, uh, t- torturing you and asking you for for too much of yourself. Um, yeah, it's like it's the perfect combination of like abstraction and uh, you know, giving it, giving them a, a form and uh, someone to like point at and be like, "Oh, I mm-hmm. hate that guy." Yeah, I mean, I've been obsessed with this for for a while. That like songwriters generally, and I think you're right that it's also it's the listener too, assuming things and kind of saying, "Oh, this is this is another Taylor Swift song about Taylor Swift." But that like it, at the same time, like there you don't have as many songs that are like a songwriter sat down like I'm going to write a song about bad Leroy Brown. Like some <laughs> other guy, like no, yeah. there's just we we've lost the ability to create new guys in yes, songs, yes, yes. you know, for the purposes of songs. Like so, it's just like oh, that's like you know, so it's always like an I and a you, and yes. like it's the and the, like and the Taylor Swift fans are like oh well, the the you in this can it's this is Jake Gyllenhaal or this yes, exactly, is you know John exactly. Mayer or like whatever it is, and like yeah, we so we we get into that, but like I wonder like what the power of it would be if it's you know it's like you know if people started just making up like proper names like that's the yeah. you know and like this, people still people do do it but yeah there's something about you know it just has everything has become autobiography we just assume yes. that it's in the way that we assume all novels or memoirs like we assume yeah. that all you know um selfies is pop music yes exactly <laughs> totally <laughs> well i wanted to ask about about the illustrations obviously joan you you are illustrating some people who are real and who existed uh and then some guys who were made up so i would love to hear about how you approached, you know, uh, illustrating like an any major dude, for example, <laughs> as opposed to like a, one of the many session musicians who contributed to Steely Dan. So I had a, um, a folder on my desktop called the Dan Casting Gallery that was populated <laughs> with um, found, found photos, um, photos I'd taken, photos of friends, uh, family, and um, images from from fashion catalogs and sewing catalogs from the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, And I would go through when we were talking about these characters, when I was thinking about these characters and be like, ah, this is the the person that I'm gonna model this after. And I would make a a composite image based loosely on somebody's like face or vibe. And then sometimes with, I would take pictures of my own body to get a body position because this was also during the, pandemic so it wasn't I couldn't I couldn't be like hey I'm going over to your house can you pose for me to do this that or the other like a a number of composite images that would be put together um and and riffed on and the major do and and a lot of the time like it would it wouldn't be until after the fact that I was like (laughs) well why does the major dude look like the 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 combination of kind of like Mark Marin and back to Jake Gyllenhaal, his his turn as uh, the the Mr. Music and John Mulaney's uh, kid faux doc. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the sack lunch bunch. bunch. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it but is so it was a, a a combo of of a lot of things and just being like the major dude has a stupid shirt with um, flowers and music notes on it and that's what. <laughs> he's wearing it's a sick shirt yeah it's pretty tight (laughs) and then i have to ask about the squonk and the squonk's tears because in the song you know have you ever seen a squonk's tears i hadn't Mm -hmm. uh and now i have so (laughs) that was there a lot of pressure to capture the squonk's tears accurately oh the squonk the squonk breaks my heart every (laughs) time i think about the squonk um the the uh, upon upon a little research the squonk it was a previously existing folkloric creature. So there, I and upon researching, I did find some previously drawn uh, and etched depictions of mm. a squonk, uh, and I read a lot of literary uh, literary uh, passages talking about 
you know, a squonk's behavior and the, 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 uh, you know, the way in which if you picked up a squonk and put him in a sack and tried to take him somewhere, you would end up just with a wet sack because he would dissolve his entire <laughs> in his own tears. And it's, oh, wow. I know, isn't that the saddest thing you've ever heard? So it was so, so drawing and painting the squonk was, um, was both a joy and a, and a great sadness because, you know, we all have a squonk within. And that was really early. Yeah. That was in the proposal doc. So like oh, that wow. was literally, there's a few that are the, there, there, there are a few paintings and a few essays that are the, have, yes. are the oldest in this. And I think like once this, once like the squonk art came in, I was like, Oh, this book is going to be sick. I'm so <laughs> excited now. Like once I had, once I was like, Oh yeah, we have a mythical beast that's just pouring sadness from its from its skin like that's what we, we we our merch game is not on point where it needs to be but like we need at some point to be making like kind of like naugahyde like squeezable squad oh. we, do. we do just going off the kind of like mythic for folkloric nature of the squonk itself what is like the archetypal steely dan character like what what are we talking about when we open the the book of dan characters and think about the the mythology of of dan uh maybe alex you, you could you could think of like the most broadly what this is yeah i mean we started with we start the book with uh you know side one track one on the first album is mm -hmm. uh do it again and we sort of thought of this guy, you know, the, 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 the lyric is go back Jack and do it again. So we're like, what if there's a real Jack? And like, if mm -hmm. so, what are the, you know, if, if these things are happening to the same person and, you know, he keeps losing and yet he keeps surviving, he keeps fucking up and yet he keeps sort of coming back something bad. It's like, you know, he gets, he goes, he goes and kills a guy and he's going to hang for it. But then like he escapes hanging and then somehow he ends up, uh, you know, sort of, he's a compulsive gambler who ends up back at the table. It's people who are mm -hmm. doing something that they probably shouldn't be doing. That's not great for them and sort of expecting a different result than what they're going to have. So we kind of started, we started with Jack, who's like this kind of archetypal kind of, you know, at, you know, another gentleman loser, like somebody who has, you know, there's a little bit of a, you know, he's got some dreams, he's got some ideas about who he's going to be, but ultimately, like, he's going to be undone by, you know, his own actions and his own, his own mistakes. And I feel like that maybe is one thread that, that runs through a lot of their protagonists, because I think they all sort of, you know, like we were saying, like, they, they all think it's going to, that it, that it's working out. They all think that they're having a good time and like that they're going to, you know, but they're ultimately they're, they're headed for, for a form of, of self-destruction in, in one way or, or another, you know, and I guess that applies all the way up to Richard Nixon, who's in here. And you know, yes. a lot of the, a lot of the real people uh, found to sort of, you know, self-destruction, uh, you know, one way or another, you know, and then Walter Becker came close to that, uh, you know, before it's yeah. like kind of, writing the ship and living for many more years, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and sort of, you know, having a, he had a very, uh, like a, a, another life after that, you know, but um, yeah. So I think that's, I think there's, there, uh, there's, a, there's an element of that, you know, it's a, you know, think about you know, the guy from, you know, that song midnight cruiser, like I am another gentleman loser, like Deacon blues is a guy yes. who's, you know, dreams of being something more than, than what he is. Um, and you know, that's, but like the, it's important that he's not the, like, by their sort of description of him. He is not actually a jazz musician. He's a guy who thinks he could be a jazz musician. <laughs> yes. He's like, yeah. yes. he's got everything, but the ability to play jazz music. And I really, I, I really relate to that as a, <laughs> as a Steely Dan character myself on some level. Yes. Well, you know, it's a lot easier to, uh, to live, to live the glamorous death of drinking scotch whiskey all night long and dying behind the wheel than actually learning to work the saxophone. Yeah, no, it doesn't it, take it as takes much a lot practice. Of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it takes very little practice to uh, to drive drunk and yeah. get into a car accident. Yeah. anyone could anyone right. could do that. No, the learning curve on that is not steep. <laughs> no, not at all. That's funny that I, f I forgot about the the Richard Nixon uh, tie in in, in uh, the songs in the book. We actually weirdly just went to see the uh, the Nixon presidential library. Yeah, like two days ago. Uh, two days ago. <laughs> and I've been kind of we I've been thinking a lot about Richard Nixon ever since. And now I, after we saw that. I said to Chris, I was like, I think we looked at Richard Nixon's face more than 99% of people 
in America yes. today. Like we've just really been contemplating it is, it Nixon. Is, it is funny to think of Nixon in the in the Steely Dan context because it is he is like, and it, even by the museum's own narrative, the the thing about him that they keep highlighting over and over is that he kept losing, losing, and then he was always coming back for more. You know, yeah, and and they they phrase it as kind of the you know because it's the Nixon Library that that they want to give him somewhat of a heroic sheen they they phrase that as like the central heroism of it of him is that <laughs> despite losing over and over the, that he comes back and, and tries again and it's the losses that make us great uh and that is a, i feel like a a very dan style yeah, thought it is for sure um, i love well, the nixon in this book because he's a it's a it's a young full of hope yes. nixon Zerile nixon yes he's a really like that we didn't uh, joe and i did not talk about this but like is the perfect it's the perfect nixon for this because he's on the he's he's on the the the, the upslope <laughs> it's like maybe he's like just giving the checker speech or something and he's yeah, yeah. lost but he's coming back you know it's yeah. sort of he's like a you know yeah like a, a young healthy vibrant nixon we were passing some of the uh the standees they have of nixon in his like 20s as he's like just running for uh congress and molly had to lean into me and go like, "Can I say something without people, everyone getting mad at me?" He, look, he looked good. He looked good. <laughs> and then his face kind of settled into this like craggy, like America, somewhere between America's dad and grandpa. Yes. Like, uh, but he he was looking fresh for a minute. I'm not I'm not ashamed to say that. What am I, what am I talking about? I love the oh, thought. God. Nixon was looking fresh. He was. He, was. <laughs> he had he had a few years in there when when you know I was like okay yeah, okay okay <laughs> yeah that's the pull that's the pull quote from this uh, yes, from is. this podcast episode. I, uh, yeah, we all have a different moment when we like when Nixon could get it. Like what's sort yeah, of like exactly. depending on our personal taste. Like and you know. <laughs> Uh, for me, it's right now. Now more than now. ever. <laughs> now more today. than ever. Uh, uh, I want to ask about, you know, one angle of this book that I really enjoyed was kind of the self-aware, the, the self-aware old fogeyness of Steely Dan and how that reflected in their music all the time. Like the obsession with, you know, Charlie Parker as this kind of pure expression of like, you know, jazz, uh, which I think you quoted some, someone else's uh, quote that black American music stands for a simple idea that everything real is happening elsewhere. Uh, so this kind of like, you know, these people who love jazz and uh, are obsessed with it as like kind of like a totem almost of like a, a more authentic expression of music that they are kind of sliding alongside but aren't actually making that specific kind of music themselves. And, you know, in, in that they are self-aware that they know that they are old-fashioned or out of time or you know not doing something that is cool and so I just I wanted to ask you know if if you felt like you resonated with that on any level of like you know being self-aware in a way and that's not this is not a read or anything but <laughs> being, being self-aware about maybe the things that you know you you like that aren't cool but are you think are important to to art and culture yeah I, I mean I, I, at this point like I, I'm 46 and I am an actual dad of a person. (laughs) So like I can't, I'm not, none of my dad things are ironic anymore. I'm just into that. (laughs) It's just the stuff that, you know, but yeah, no, I think that they're great because I think that they, they sort of took pride in being that in a way, Mm -hmm. like it was how they really felt. But I think they also kind of liked the idea. Like there's these, there's great interviews where like people from you know like music magazines will be like are you into this or that current jazz thing and they're like no you think i would but <laughs> you, you might think i would like that but i don't like you really got off i they really kind of get off the bus like at a certain point and just kind of like all of the best music was you know was made you know in this thing and i think that like so it, and that extends to a kind of a, i think a general feeling about you know the past being mm-hmm. this unrecapturable thing, like where things were, you know, things were better. And I think they did, they did have that, but then at the same time, they were so cynical that they were sort of, they, they, they knew that their, you know, their nostalgia was like somewhat of a, you know, it was a, a placebo or a poison or something. Well, one of the things that's interesting from their particular stance, cause that idea that everything was better five to 10 years ago is kind of an eternal thing. I think throughout all of history, but it's particularly like America, you know, latter half of the 20th century. It was all we are always like moving away from some idealized immediate past. Mm-hmm. But there is like some kind of the, the thing that 
I think that sets Steely Dan apart is that they know that they have that, but they also know that it is like inherently lame. Yeah. To do that, that that they they find a sense of deep uncoolness in their their own uh like n- nostalgizing of things which in its own way feels like it's a, it, it it frees them or it, like it kind of gives them that that bitter feeling but but it mm. frees them from the cycle of imagining that the, those feelings are true and authentic right. in some way i think you know? they understand inherently that living in the past is living in grief yeah, that there is, uh, and it's making a conscious choice to live in grief um, because you'll never, you'll never get to where you never were. They, I, they're, they're, yeah. they're, you know, uh, you, you can't. Which Alex has said many times, you can't be smarter than than Don and Walt uh, uh, operating yes. together. But they're, you know, obviously smart enough to know um, the limitations of that of that decision to orient yourself that way to uh, yeah. to which also is incredibly an incredibly exclusionary way to 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 orient yourself you know what is the past that you're imagining why uh why aren't you able to pivot that into an imagined future for yourself yes mm. it's always focusing on something that you either lost or never had exactly but they had also tasted the thing about it was that they were there for like they literally like the you know like don saw like went to like jazz clubs and saw like the greats of that period they caught yes. the tail end of something that yeah. was really still happening like they could still you could still go see charles mingus do a show like yes. back then mm-hmm. and like you could mm-hmm. go to so like he went to the Newport Jazz Festival when he was like 14 and like he had this experience and so he did also kind of like I don't th- I, like I think Charlie Parker was dead like before like he was like cognizant of, of those things but like he he did get a little bit of it so he knew they knew enough yeah. and so they were always <laughs> kind of like reaching back they were like we, we know yeah. what this like, actually the what this ass actually end of is. jazz the ass end yeah. of the brill building and and the end of rock like 60s yeah. rock like sort of the, the, yeah. they come into it like in 1972 when it's like sort of you know a lot of like you know, uh, the, the, a lot of the big, you know, people were dead, like it's sort of at, at that point and like sort of getting into, in a, you know, and like, you know, you hear about like, like the reason like Cameron Crowe got all those great stories at Rolling Stone was that he actually was excited to go meet Three Dog Night. And the people who had met Janis Joplin were like, yeah. fuck Three Dog Night. <laughs> you know? like, it's hey, like that was the. Like, no, look, seriously, like, they, yeah, they, they had good taste in covers. Like, they're good. You know, yeah, yeah. They knew the, yeah, the, the solid, solid band. But yeah, no, that's that. So like, it was almost like, yes, yeah, so rock and roll is one of the things I think that they sort of experienced as something that was dying, like something that was, a, you know, the, the, the tail end of, you know, of its great yes. period. Yeah. They were always. Yeah. It's funny to think of them as somebody who who throughout their entire whole thing is has the feeling of that they are beginning at the end of something when now, you know, we're coming at them 50 years ago and being like, man, that was the classic era of like studio rock production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they thought it sucked. <laughs> they were like, I mean, no, they loved that sort of being able to make perfect records that that technology existed. Yeah. But at the same, I, I don't think that they really felt super connected to like, you know, this is what's going on in the yeah. scene right now. They were sort of always like, that's the other thing. It's like sort of the alienation from their context at all times, yes. like sort of being these kind of like very cynical, you know, outer borough New York guys uh, in the heart of the yacht rock moment in California and being these kind of like, you know, some somewhat creeped out observers of everything around them. Like they sort of, you know, they, they, you know, done, like, and then, you know, same thing for New York. I think they sort of were observers of that too, but like, there's something about being in this, you know, in this context um, in California and looking around at all the, you know, people, what everything that they were up to out there. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess this brings me to, I did want to ask, um, you know, obviously Steely Dan comes out of this specific moment where, you know, they met in college. That's something a lot of people in bands nowadays do. They, you know, were in this kind of like song writing machine system for a while. That's something that happens to, you know, young songwriters sometimes. But then I feel like they kind of break, they obviously break with mainstream in that they, they stop playing live. They really focus on you know, studio albums and spending so much time perfecting them and it's expensive and time consuming and all this stuff. So this is all to say, are we ever going to, is, is part of the appeal of Steely Dan is that we're never going to have anything like Steely Dan again in terms of how the music industry 
supports or does not support artists. Just even leaving aside the these two guys being in this and this partnership, what they were able to to do together, like it being sort of some magic thing, the amount of money that they spent making these records <laughs> that you, if you know anything about what it costs to make records at all and you think about what it's like we're gonna get the top session guys in this room we're gonna book this space we're gonna put together a band of the highest paid obviously like the best session players and then we're gonna we're gonna say we're gonna throw all that away and we're gonna have a, another band of the best session players the other guys <laughs> come five other guys for you know like whatever it is making like you know a thousand dollars a day or something like that like it's yeah. you know it's it, it, it's like the old music industry and like it's sort of it is a, they were using all of these systems that i think are not in place anymore now at the same time like it's a lot easier to make a perfect sounding record in your house than it used to be so mm-hmm. I think those things have have changed you don't necessarily need to pay for all of that but, like studio time i mean those record those records do have a kind of lush sound to them that is hard to imagine anybody like fully recapturing in any kind of way. I mean, they're just dense with mm-hmm. sonic information, all like working towards one feeling uh, in a way where you're like, is this a perfect record? You know, <laughs> uh, which is hard to imagine uh, anybody coming up with something that, that feels that, that uh, pulled out of, of time and space. I don't know. And they were making it for like a format where like for people who were actually going to hear all of this stuff, like mm-hmm. that's the other thing, mm-hmm. people who they're making analog, they're like, you know, vinyl records that people were going to listen to on like your, you know, the like archety- archetypal dad yes. stereo, none yeah. of this earbud bullshit where it's like no real, it's like a fake bass sound or whatever. It's like, it's tricking your ear into thinking you're hearing something like they mm-hmm. knew that this was actually going to be heard on that level. And like my favorite thing that I always pull out is like guys selling stereo equipment would use Asia to demo the stereo. They were trying to sell you to be like, you got to hear it. Like the, you know, you got to hear the way the, with the TK four, two ones, the bass just really hits you right here. And like that would, it was Asia was the one that they used for that. And then when CDs came out, it yes. was the night flight. And, uh, Donald and that's for still solo. for audio professionals and audio workers. That's still how, like, okay, I'm getting new new studio monitors. How are we going to test Asia? Always. Right. It's like sound men use it to tune yeah. the room, right? Yeah. Like, if they're good. For real. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. They basically created, like, the a, a golden record of specifically of, like, audio engineering. Yes. That yeah. is, talk, talk, about, a, talk yeah. about a legacy. Yes. Yeah. It's like Roger, shout out to Roger Nichols, who was kind of their, you know, like, they, like, they had, Gary Katz was technically the producer, but Roger was the guy who, like, sort of, like, the engineer who could actually sort of, like, act, you know, enact the things that they wanted. It was Roger who built the drum machine when they needed a drum machine. Yeah. Which, like, mm-hmm. He invented the sample drum for them. Well, I have uh, one, it's it's not really a question, I just want to bring this up uh, to get your reactions to it, is that I think my favorite paragraph of this book was talking about their album of the year Grammy win for Two Against Nature, which uh, you said, uh, Alex, was received as further proof of the geriatric cluelessness of the Grammy voting pool. But, you know, for the other nominees, Radiohead are a group of white men whose nominated album tries to stuff the traditional rock song format with as many avant-garde effects and jazz flourishes as it can hold. And they once made an entire documentary film about how much they hated touring and doing interviews. <laughs> Beck is a white man nominated for an album of funk-infused music with funny cryptic lyrics about weird sex with Hollywood freaks. And Eminem is a white man performing traditionally black music with consummate technical skill and using it to depict unspeakable horrors committed by a shifting series of quasi-fictional alter egos. Donald and Walter have been there and done all this. Once I saw that synthesized, because I feel like it's very common to point at whatever has won album of the year and being like, these idiots, they don't know what they're talking about. Like, that's not what's like currently on the pulse of, you know, music uh, trends or whatever. And I think those Steely Dan win just proves that it's a it is everyone is a little bit Steely Dan uh, in the way that they have done things. Yeah, they were just up against three different devolved versions of Steely Dan. Mutations of uh, of Steely Dan. (laughs) The the children Steely Dan as as the dad. And it's just a remarkable way to to paint Eminem as the uh, the, uh, a descendant of Steely Dan. But you know what? You're not wrong. 
I, I mean, it was weird. I sort of like started writing that. I was like, oh, wait, this is actually true. Like I was sort of <laughs> fully, it's fully, fully, fully true. And the other, I think it was Paul Simon was the yes. other person up for it. So like, they're also a boomer. There was, you know, it, like, but yeah, so there was a bit of a, a, a split vote there, but yeah, no, I love that. Like they come back and they, it's the most, it's inconvenient to their vision of themselves as losers. Like things like getting a Grammy and being in the hall. They of won. Fame. You yeah. Can, yeah. You can tell that they're uncomfortable <laughs> with it and everything, which is why they're so unassuming. It's like, like Walter Becker's hall of fame acceptance speech is, I feel like we've said everything that we need to say about this on our website. So does anybody have? <laughs> not so even, then he, not even the more poetic version. I feel like we've said everything we need to say on the record, but it's like, uh, it's like, uh, Check out Steely, yeah. Steely Dan. That's like what, uh, when Hillary Clinton was like, for my answer to that question, go to Hillary Clinton.com slash right. policy. <laughs> yeah. And then he opened it up to questions, which is great. Yeah. yeah. I want to just start saying that. I think I've answered that. On my website. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as we wind down for the uh, our our time, um, favorite favorite Steely Dan character for That's both exactly of you. What I was gonna ask. I knew you were gonna ask that from the from the book or just sort of in general, like our our uh, like because I have different I have different favorites. I was gonna complicate it a little by saying who who's your favorite and who are you? Ooh, okay. <laughs> I am Deacon Blues, yes. for sure. Uh, I can't. I, uh, anything else, you know, I would be. I would be lying, because I am uh, not that cool, and I sort of dream of being cooler. Um, I think my favorite character that I sort of learned more about while writing the book is probably Kathy Barbarian, who's Hell like yeah. just a one, like one name drop that has sort of, I, I didn't never knew who that was. And I always assumed it was like some friend of theirs. And then eventually I found out who it actually was like, uh, you know, that, cause it's just such a random, you know, it just seems like such a random thing, but she had an incredible life. She was so fucking cool. Like when I started like really like watching things and reading it, like that's what that chapter is really long just cause there was so much stuff to get into, but like her whole kind of, uh, you know, her arc of like marrying this moving to Italy and marrying this Italian man and working in like the radiophonic workshop and being, you know, sort of part of all of that with John Cage and everything like that was, you know, that stuff was amazing. And like somebody, I really want to read like the great, like Kathy Barbarian uh, biography. Cause I, it, it, I, I, as far as I know, it's not, doesn't fully exist in any form. And like, you know, she's been written about, but like, I, I, I want that, that full thing. So I think like in terms of like a, a you know, an actual person that's, that's up there. Joan LeMay, who are you? Uh, I'm, I'm going to say who, who I am is, is Jack, insofar as we are all Jack, uh, repeating, our, yes. repeating our mistakes again and again and again and again until we finally learn our lesson. And do we? Do we ever? Um, you know, Buddhism, <laughs> karma, et cetera. Uh, and, and my answer to who's, who's your favorite, which is also like maybe who, who would you want to be? is also this it's the same as Alex's is Kathy Barbarian. I mean what a figure. She was I I I she was a standout in the book of like I feel like I was feeling a lot of uh love for her and I had no idea who she was and then I was on her Wikipedia page being like what what's going who is right. this lady? I'll just say for the sake of the listeners that the book is great it's and awesome. a really fun read and you know we've already talked about just the the focusing on the characters makes it a kind of unique way to approach a band, but I also just really like the style of the book that it is. It has this kind of like Dr. Manhattan, like all timelines at once type <laughs> thing. And it's like, it's 1971 and Walter and Donald are meeting in an upstate New York coffee shop for the first time. It's 2004 and I'm reading the meanest pitchfork <laughs> review of all time. It's 2023. <laughs> and suddenly there's a brand, there's a previously uh, uh, unheard of new response and, 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 uh, you know, appreciation for, for Steely Dan, like all, it, it kind of collapses all of the like critical and artistic periods, but also really expands them all at the same time. And I found it a very compelling way to look at these people who have been uh, like riding one of the like hardest to find, but most important, like gossamer threads of pop culture for 50 years. Uh, and yeah, I, re I really enjoyed the the style of of the book as well. Well, thank you. I, I sat in this room and wondered if anybody would be able to follow it or like it uh, for many <laughs> well, months. It, it hit. And, so it's good. It's it's. I don't get tired of of hearing that because I remember sitting in this exact seat, uh, thinking like, "Oh man, this is. I don't know. This is. I think it's gonna. I think this book is gonna look amazing, but I don't know what the text. Um, <laughs> so I I appreciate that. 
Well, the book is Quantum Criminals, and if anyone out there listening to this has heard of Celia Dan and been like, I don't know, maybe that's not for me. It's a great way to get into them. Or has a dad uh, who <laughs> loves Steely Dan and you don't know what to get them for uh, uh, the, the next gift-giving holiday that shows up. Yes. Uh, well, thank you both for coming on. Kidding, of course. Thanks so much for having us. Good luck for the rest of your summer. Um, are you he- Where are you headed next for, for uh, promo? There is San Francisco, there is uh, Portland, and there is Seattle. Two of those three, uh, San Francisco is just me, but Joan and I will be in Portland on the, when's San Francisco is the 23rd at Book Passage in the Ferry Building, and then where's Portland? I forget. Uh, Portland, where's my calendar? (laughs) July 25th. We'll be at Powell's Books yes. in Portland, Oregon, with the great Matt Fraction officiating. And that's Powell's downtown, um, an important delineation. Nice. Uh, Thursday, the 27th, we'll be at Third Place Books in Seattle. And uh, that is going to be with the wonderful Megan Sealing. And that is also going to be a, a, a joy. Thank you guys so much for coming Thank on. Thank you. Get the book. Buy the book. Buy the book. Buy the book.